Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today I'm handing over the JOSPT Insights reins to some of the world's leading clinician researchers in the field of hip morphology and hip pain. At JOSPT, we're really proud to work with the Yahira Collaborative to advance research and clinical practice for young people with hip pain. Over the coming months, you're going to hear more about what's new in the research and understanding of hip pain, including how it develops and how to best treat it, all geared towards helping you best help the patients and athletes you work with. Dr. Joshua Heary, sports physiotherapist and research fellow at La Trobe University in Melbourne, has the hosting duties. Today's episode of JOSPT Insights is all about treating hip dysplasia. If you're looking for a bit more information on what causes hip dysplasia and the impairments to look out for, jump back to episode 129 in your feed for the hip dysplasia explainer from Dr. Inga Mecklenburg and Dr. Julia Jakobsen, who also feature in today's episode. For now, it's back to Josh. How do we treat these, these patients in the, in, in when we see them in our, in our daily clinical practice? All these patients, given they are obviously, obviously have pain and symptoms and their quality of life is impaired? I would definitely use the information uh, on the, the physical impairments that they present with. So seeing so large, very, uh, so large differences in uh, hip muscle strength com- between patients and healthy participants, we have identified a, a target for treatment. They have reduced hip muscle strength. So uh, an obvious treatment would be to strengthen their hip muscles. Another thing Julia and I have talked a lot about is the importance of patient education. When we talk to the patients, they often have misconceptions about what their condition is because they have received some information, they have further searched on the internet. Some of them have misconceptions about that their hip joint might dislocate, that they worry about loading their hip joint, that they should avoid being too physically active because they risk developing hip osteoarthritis. And those misconceptions are extremely important that we correct and and deliver good information about what their hip condition is and how they can handle the symptoms. We did a qualitative study on 17 patients with hip dysplasia, where we explored the experiences of living with hip dysplasia. This is a study from 2021. What the patients really felt was they felt controlled about their pain. They expressed having a really high day-to-day variation in pain, and this high variation had a high impact on their ability to be independent. So they felt so hard to to participate in the physical activities, feeling controlled and not able to manage their condition. Taking the results of this clinical study is that we really have to work with self-management. Not enough just to talk about or just to inform them how does the joint look like? What is hip dysplasia? What kind of pain do we see? Because they have to work with their experiences. We did a feasibility study that we finished, I think, in 2022. 
where we investigated exercise and also patient education. And what we experienced and also the findings of this study was the importance of this patient education component that we really had to base our education on the experiences that the patients had on their, in their everyday life. So one thing was exercises and another thing was all the activities they did every day. I've had patients telling me that they had injuries after participating in a child birthday or being uh, walking around a zoo all day or trying a new race bike and then certainly they got a lot of pain. So we have to talk with them about these experiences that we know of and in a way coaching them so they are able to manage both exercise but also everyday life activities. And I think that's really an important element so that they regain control in their own life. We did a study also back in 2021 on isometric hip muscle strength testing and we found muscle strength deficits between 20 and 30 percent when we compared patients with hip dysplasia compared to healthy or asymptomatic participants. So they have large strength deficits and therefore we also have to address these strength deficits with some kind of exercise training. That's great. Thanks, Inga and Julie. So in the situation where we've tried education and we've tried strengthening and our patient's symptoms are not improving, what are the options that our patient has for surgery, for example? Are there treatments that they can have to improve their pain and, um, and manage hip dysplasia? There is consensus that first-line treatment should be non-surgical. So, so the interventions should be uh, exercise interventions, interventions aimed at relieving uh, hip pain. But if that is not sufficient and not before that has been tested, then surgical management can be considered. In Denmark, we consider the periacetabular osteotomy as the treatment of choice when patients are treated surgically. So that is a joint relief, a joint preserving uh, treatment where the acetabulum is, well, three osteotomies are performed. The acetabulum is moved laterally, anteriorly and fixated with uh, two long screws. In some countries, the patients are offered hip arthroscopy, and that's often if there's signs of uh, a damaged labrum. And in other countries, the surgical treatment of choice would be a total hip replacement. And then the surgeons would uh, would argue that conservative treatment should be tried out and offered until the, the pain was really uh, very high. And then there were signs of severe osteoarthritis and then hip replacement should be offered. So this also, there's no consensus, I would say, worldwide of the surgical treatment. But at most centers where they offer surgical treatment, then they would offer the periacetabular osteotomy. Is there a, a point in our patient's journey with hip dysplasia that PAO surgery is not appropriate? Talking to the PAO surgeons, they would emphasize that patients with hip dysplasia who are candidates for a periacetabular osteotomy should not have hip osteoarthritis or only very slight signs of hip osteoarthritis. And that's because they have learned from 
experience is that it's patients with moderate or severe osteoarthritis they don't gain from from uh, periastasis tapular osteotomy so they should rather be followed up and and be offered conservative treatment and then be offered a hip replacement later on so it's very important for the surgeons to offer the periastasis tapular osteotomy at a stage where patients have hip dysplasia they have clinical symptoms but they have no signs of only very slight signs of hip osteoarthritis then they are good candidates for surgery. And then there's a whole lot of other exclusion criteria on age and BMI, range of motion that can exclude the patients from being offered surgical treatment. Is there any studies that compare a, a physiotherapy-led intervention to a, or a rehab intervention to a, a PAO surgery, for example? There is, actually. Well, we thought. Everybody agrees that exercise is first-line treatment. Then we performed a feasibility study investigating if patients who were candidates for periastasis tapular osteotomy were able to perform exercise. And this was progressive resistance training. So this was high-intensive exercise. And this turned out that this kind of exercise is feasible and safe for the patients. And then we thought... The key question is, is surgical treatment more effective than exercise interventions for these patients? And that led us to initiate a randomized control trial that is led by PhD student Lisa Turning, where she recruits patients who are candidates for periacetabular osteotomy. And they're recruited at three hospitals in Norway and Denmark. And then the patients are told we don't know what is most effective exercise or surgical treatment. Are you happy to uh, be included in this study and being randomized to either exercise or surgical treatment? That study is, is ongoing and we are still recruiting patients for another year. So far, there's 54 patients included. So we are very excited about that study, obviously. That is um, going to be a, a really great study. I, I can't wait to see the results of that one, Inga. So, Julie, do we know from studies how long improvement in pain and function can last for after the PAO surgery? Yeah, we, we have some information from uh, prospective studies on the survival of the, of the hip joint after hip-preserving surgery. After 10 years, 85% of the patients still have a preserved native hip Going a bit further, after 20 years, 60% of the patients still have their native hip. And after 30 years, we also have studies, but that's, that's of course, studies that has been done on PAOs very long time ago. So, But we know uh, from survival studies that 29% of the patients have remained preserved after 30 years. So it, it appears that it's a, a very feasible option for, for patients with hip dysplasia to maintain function, improve pain, maintain their native hip over, over a relatively long period of time. Is that sort of fair to say? Yeah, I would say that. So after 20 years, a bit more than 50% have a preserved hip. When you do studies like that and have hip replacement as the outcome, then a lot of patients do not want to have hip replacement and might postpone it. So therefore, these kind of studies do not always reflect that, for instance, 30% of the 
of the patients are happy with their their hip. So, Julia, what are the options for patients that that aren't able to have a PAO surgery? Today, unusual care for patients who are not candidates for hip-preserving surgery is a consultation with the hip surgeon, telling the patients what to do and give some advice, but otherwise they don't get any treatment from the hospital. Of course, some of these patients, they will try to get some kind of treatment by themselves and and pay out-of-pocket money by themselves. And we realized that during my clinical work, but also during my PhD, that about half of all, all patients in the outpatient clinic at Aarhus University Hospital were not candidates for hip-preserving surgery. And they really had a very small treatment option at the hospital. And we did not have any evidence what kind of treatment should we offer these patients. They were not candidates for hip-preserving surgery due to having a BMI above 25. Also, if they had an age above, above uh, 45 years. And also, if they had reduced hip range of mo- motion, that was also a criteria for not getting hip-preserving surgery. And then there was also some patients who are not willing to undergo surgery. So altogether, these count for about 50% of the population at the outpatient clinic. So first, we did a feasibility study investigating an exercise and patient education intervention in 30 participants and found that both it was feasible and also acceptable for the patients to do exercise and, and get this patient education. But what we also saw that they increased their strength a lot. They improved patient-reported outcomes. At the same time, while Lisa Turning is running her RCT on uh, surgery compared with progressive resistance training, I'm running a trial on all the patients who are not candidates on hip-preserving surgery, where we randomize patients to either exercise and patient education compared with usual care, which is an oral consultation on pain management. And we have done these two RCTs parallel. So at the time we have 58 in my RCT and still have a bit more to go. Our goal is 200 participants. So, Well, it sounds what you're saying, Julie. There are treatment options for people that are not willing to undergo PAO surgery or may not be appropriate for various different reasons, which is really obviously a great, a great thing to know from a, a, a physical therapist perspective because we know that we can administer treatments that will still help with pain reduction and improvement in function. Yeah, and a lot of these patients, their history is that they have tried a lot of different issues and also other other kind of health professionals trying to help them with their symptoms. But as there is no evidence, no one knows what to do. So the patients are often very frustrated. They have a diagnosis, they know they have symptoms and they are Sometimes their symptoms have a great impact on their life, but the treatment often offered for them is very, we don't know anything about that. So if you were to each give me your, um, or as a collective, give me your top three take-home messages for our listeners today about the management of hip dysplasia, what would they be? Top one is that Exercise is safe for patients with hip dysplasia and it improves pain, physical function and possibly also quality of life. Then I would say that this is not something we've talked a lot about today, 
So this is based on very little data, but I would say sufficient training doses is probably important for the effect on pain and function. And that we don't know if one type of exercise is more effective than another type of uh, exercise. So here there's clearly uh, an area for uh, future investigations. And then I think we have not talked about today, but which I know Julia and I both agree on, is that informing patients with hip dysplasia about the importance of being physically active, remaining physically active. And that's because physical activity has additional benefits. So uh, we know physical activity is prevention of up to 35 different conditions, chronic conditions from depression to loss of structure in, in, the, in the joints. But also we know that physical activity is actually medicine. It's treatment in 25, 26 diseases. So physical activity is extremely important. Also when you have hip dysplasia. Yeah, I really agree on this, Inga. And also the, the RCT we're doing at the time, one part of the patient education is also advice on physical activity in their everyday life. So physical activity, I agree, that's a really important thing. And then maybe adding to what Inga said, I also agree on the on the training part. Another part is what we talked about is delivering knowledge on how to manage symptom, symptoms in their everyday life. So really trying to help them to understand what hip dysplasia is, how they can learn to control their symptoms and pain, and how they can learn to build up their joints so they are able to be physically active in their everyday life. Patient education really involves these factors that Julie mentioned. It's extremely important that we educate our patients to uh, about what their hip condition is and to being able to manage their hip condition themselves. And one thing when we are handling or managing patients with hip dysplasia is that we probably also have to acknowledge that most of these patients are young. Some may have small children. A lot of them are in their early working life or are studying. So we have to use, we have to manage or help them with their condition with some kind of flexible or very easy intervention so that they're able to fit exercises into their everyday life. So they can balance working life, small children, and then also building up and protecting their hip. I think that's a really nice point to end on today is that we obviously need to recognize that, as you say, Julie, that these uh, these, these, these patients are at a time in their life where they are very busy. So we need to remember that when we are giving them things to do in, in terms of their rehabilitation or exercises for home. So that's a really great point to finish, I think. It's been a real pleasure to have both of you on today's podcast. I'm sure that the listeners have taken some great messages home with them that they'll be able to apply in their clinical practice and hopefully improve the both the diagnosis and management of people with hip dysplasia. So thanks, Inga, and thanks, Julie. You're welcome. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. 
tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm-hmm.